0: to this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to
1: patient care. This is Armand Klitsch, Cardiac Surgery Fellow at the University of Pennsylvania, interviewing Dr. Michael Acker, Professor-in-Chief of the Division of Cardiovascular Surgery at the University of Pennsylvania. This interview will focus on the topic of left ventricular cyst devices. Uh, Dr. Acker, let's first start with a clinical scenario. A 54-year-old male with a history of non-ischemic cardiomyopathy has an ejection fraction of 15% and is being followed by a heart failure cardiologist. He has had several admissions over the last several months related to his heart failure, and more recently has been placed on intravenous milrinone. He is currently at home but has NYHA class four symptoms despite optimal medical therapy. His peak oxygen consumption is estimated at nine. At this point, how would you proceed with your workup? Are there other pertinent points related to the patient's history or physical exam? And what laboratory or imaging studies would you want to review or obtain? Uh, Good. I mean,
0: this um, man appears to be a good candidate not only for a left ventricular cyst device, but more importantly for a heart transplant. So the first thing we would do here is to start a workup for heart transplantation. And this is the same multidisciplinary group that would also uh, decide on um, VAD therapy uh, as a... um, bridge or destination. So we would be engaging uh, the whole team. If he has heart, class 4 heart failure symptoms at home or known, he really deserves to be in the hospital. And the first thing we would probably do is place a right heart cath, um, Swan-Gans catheter, to determine what his uh, right-sided filling pressures are and to optimize him further in the, op, in, in, in the CCU setting. It's um, you know, in addition, we would be doing all the normal things we do for heart transplant, looking at the psychosocial environment, looking at his renal function, his pulmonary function, his hepatic function, uh, getting our normal screening tests, which would be a uh, you know, a CT scan of his uh, of his abdomen for uh, minimally. Uh, we also would be getting serologies and and, and measuring a PRA. Uh, Again, standard workup for heart transplantation. Specifically um, pertinent to whether he's a heart transplant candidate and or a VAD candidate would be his pulmonary vascular pressures and his pulmonary vascular resistance, as well as specific um, uh, imaging regarding his uh, right ventricle. Um, It is possible that his right ventricle is uh, very um, weak, and that would uh, certainly uh, influence our ability to place an LVAD alone. Uh, it was also possible that he has severe pulmonary hypertension, and he wouldn't be a candidate for um, transplant therapy, uh, or that we would have to intervene specifically with uh, pulmonary vasodilators uh, um, to address that. Um, how would I proceed with workup, laboratory... Imaging. So standard laboratory exam would include LFT, serology, um, uh, looking for peripheral vascular disease, carotid disease,
1: etc. Okay. Let's say that the patient has a good social support, appears to be compliant with his heart failure medications and medical follow-up. He has a family history of non-ischemic cardiomyopathy, and his father died in his 50s from heart failure. Uh, In terms of his past medical history, he has a history of hypertension, but otherwise has no comorbidities. His renal function, liver function, as well as lung function are well-preserved. He is a non-smoker. His BSA is 2.0. The reason why he continues on continuous milrinone is really due to systemic hypotension with an inability to wean. His cardiac catheterization uh, demonstrates no coronary lesions. Uh, He has an echocardiogram uh, that demonstrates uh, the aforementioned EF of 15%. Uh, He does have some trivial AI, moderate MR, mild TR, and mild RV dysfunction. He gets a catheterization, and his hemodynamic parameters include a right ventricular stroke work index of 800, a CVP of 15, uh, pulmonary vascular resistance of uh, 3, and a transpulmonary gradient of 12. His laboratory parameters, including serologies, are normal. Uh, the CT scan of the abdomen as well is normal. Uh, demonstrates no abnormal abnormal findings. Based on discussions uh, with the heart failure group, uh, which includes your institution's OPO, waitlist candidates, blood grouping, etc., you anticipate that he would be on the waitlist for at least a few months uh, if you were to consider transplantation only. How would you likely proceed at this point?
0: Um. I see no contraindications for listing for heart transplantation other than a moderate concern about his PVR of 3. At Penn, our cutoff for uh, heart transplantation, frankly, is a PVR of 3 or greater. So we would probably want to institute some sort of intervention to see if we can lower the PVR a little bit, uh, such as... um, Uh, or other types of uh, pulmonary vasodilators. Having said that, a transpulmonary gradient of 12 is quite uh, amenable to transplant, so most likely the first thing we would do is list them for transplant. What's not shown on these hemos is what exactly his cardiac index is. If his index is uh, greater than 2 on milrinone, um, we would probably feel comfortable taking the SWAN out and managing, perhaps even as an outpatient. If his, uh, pulmonary vas- if his cardiac index is less than 2, we um, would probably, um, at least for some time, uh, keep the uh, SWAN GANS in, list them for transplant, and depending on his dose of milrinone with the SWAN in, make him a status 1A. Based on the presumptions of this discussion, that it lets, that he was going to wait several months because of his size and let's say a blood group O, we would, uh, and his pulmonary vascular resistant, uh, excuse me, and his cardiac index was less than two, we would go ahead with LVAD therapy as a bridge to transplant. If on Milner known his cardiac index was greater than two, we would probably feel comfortable watching him and waiting with repeated serial. Um, right heart cats.
1: Okay, so let's say his cardiac index is 1.8 and you've decided to proceed with LVAD implantation as a bridge to transplant. In terms of preoperative planning, can you first discuss how you make the decision of whether someone is an LVAD candidate, not only for bridge to transplant, but for destination therapy? And can you discuss some of the indications and contraindications for both of these?
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess assuming that he's, again, in the previous paragraph, has no contraindications as far as multi-organ dysfunction, uh, psychosocial, uh, drug addiction, uh, other types of substance abuse, and that he's a candidate for uh, heart transplantation, the only thing that would negate a similar uh, candidacy for LVAD would be his right ventricle. And uh, we would be looking very carefully at that. The paragraph above uh, assumes that he has mild RV dysfunction, so with that, I see absolutely no contraindication to going ahead. Some of the things, again, that separate the two, if he has a restrictive myopathy with a small cavity, we're reluctant to use the current centrifugal um, continuous flow pumps. Uh, So that would be a relative contraindication for LVAD therapy in addition to uh, what we would consider uh, severe RV dysfunction. Um, as far as candidacies for BTT versus DT, um, our, our cutoff for um, transplant is 70. So if you're 70 or above, you're automatically um, uh, not a candidate for heart transplant, and only for destination therapy. If you have some sort of soft substance abuse, such as continued smoking, um, For other non-compliance, we would probably go DT first, even if your age is less than 70. If you have obesity greater than our cutoff, which is a BSA of 38, uh, we would consider you for destination therapy and not BTT, until which
1: time you um, lost weight, perhaps. Okay, in terms of uh, assessing the potential need for right ventricular support after LVAD implantation, how do you evaluate this preoperatively? What specific parameters and values make you concerned that the RV will not do well after LVAD implantation? And how do you, at what point is is being high risk for RV failure become a contraindication to placing an LVAD? Okay.
0: So... That is really the Achilles heel of current mechanical permanent mechanical circular support. We do not have good long term, uh, imp, um, totally implantable RVADs uh, that were designed to be uh, a RVAD. Um, what we look at, um, and this is this decision is much more important when you have uh, a patient that's only for destination therapy. A transplant is a bivad replacement therapy and is, a, uh, is the bailout for any bridge to transplant um, VAD therapy in that you can get by with more temporary uh, biventricular support or RVAD support when you know you have the an eventual ability to transplant the patient. Uh, what I specifically look at is a combination of the echo as well as the hemodynamics and they're the standard stuff. We look at right ventricular stroke work index, CBP, in relationship to the um, pulmonary pressures. Bottom line is if you have a high CBP and normal or middling high uh, PVR or um, pulmonary artery pressures, you are in trouble and you're at high risk for RV failure. Not only RV failure that requires a... Specific intervention with uh, L- with a uh, mechanical circular support, but more, but even, even more commonly. And very importantly, many patients that get LVADs for destination therapy and are cripples, with multiple hospital missions for for RV failure, where they require prolonged inotropic support, where they where their exercise capacity is is limited forever because of the RV, not all, all not all RVs get better just with LVAD therapy, and I would estimate that twenty percent of the patients that I that we see at Penn for destination therapy because of LV failure, we cannot uh, either we do not offer an LVAD 2 or we make a mistake in offering that to, and they require some sort of long-term bridging, whether it's pharmacologic or mechanical, or eventually limp out of the hospital with multiple readmissions. So ideally, we want a patient with a, a lowish CVP, a high P, uh, pulmonary artery pressures, a, a uh, pulmonary vascular stroke work index over six hundred. Um, that those are those are easy. Um, but again, when you have a, a, a severe RV dysfunction in a destination patient, we're very loath to go down the route of LVAD. If they're a bridge to transplant, we're more likely to take the risk of putting the LVAD in. Hopefully the, the, RVAD gets, the right ventricle gets better, but, f- but know that we have a bailout with temporary support, whether it's a centromag or uh, some sort of axial flow on the uh, right side. Occasionally, we'll have a bridge to transplant patient where we know has biventricular failure, such as giant cell myocarditis. In those cases, you will never get get away with an LVAD alone. You need complete you need support right from the beginning. In those cases, if the patient is very large, then you could consider a total artificial heart or what we've done occasionally are two heartware pumps as a buy solution that gets patients home. But again, the uh, though everyone has some successes, the, a really careful look at the world's literature shows that that success rate at one year is not very good. So again, we would only consider that for a patient that we would
1: have a transplant as an option. <clears throat> Our patient had uh, trivial AI, moderate MR, and mild TR. Can you tell us... At uh, what severity or under what conditions you would address valvular disease at the time of LVAD implantation and specifically AIMR and TR? Okay, so for
0: aortic insufficiency, uh, we intervene for anything over mild and the intervention is generally a park stitch. Uh, occasionally in a, in a patient that is DT, we might replace the valve uh, because we want it functioning. Uh, very often, not uh, the Park Stitches uh, leaflets will uh, cease to open. Um, that's true also with bioprosthetic valves. Uh, but again, we will allow mild or less AI. We, won't, we will intervene for moderate or more. As far as MR goes, we je- intervene for MR. MR is generally functional because of LV failure. Uh, and uh, if that's the case, should get better with a well-placed LVAD. For mitral stenosis, that of course would be, that would have to be addressed and it would be addressed uh, by uh, some sort of valve replacement or valvuloplasty. Tricuspid valve insufficiency, we have become more aggressive, uh, I would say recently, over the last couple years. Certainly severe TR, we would uh, address with a, a uh, annuloplasty ring off um, without an ischemic period before placement of the LVAD. Um, for moderate TR at Penn, generally most of us do not intervene. We feel it's functional, and especially if we expect the right ventricle to get better, i.e. there's a scenario of high PA pressures. PA pressures will get less with LVAD. Therefore, the moderate TR
1: should get significantly better. What about patients who have prior mechanical or bioprosthetic, aortic, or mitral valves? How would you address these at the time of LVAD implant? Mechanical
0: valve in the mitral position should not be a problem. The patients are going to be anticoagulated. The ventricles do contract. Uh, The leaflets should open and close like they do without an LVAD. Uh, There is no indication for um, addressing that. Uh, More problematic is a mechanical valve in the aortic position. Uh, very often those leaflets will completely close once the LV is unloaded, uh, depending on how uh, how bad the function of the left ventricle is. In those cases, we feel strongly that the um, leaflet should be either permanently closed with a uh, sort of a, a, a stitch that goes on both the outflow and inflow side of it, if you will, or what I usually do is sew a patch across the uh, out, uh, right on top of the valve um, to eliminate any possibility of those leaflets uh, closing, getting clotted on the ventricular side, then perhaps opening and, and, and having a be a embolic source of, uh, of complications. Uh, generally, it's unnecessary to actually exchange the valve. I think that's a lot of surgery. So again, uh, we either cover the valve or um, you know, make it
1: inoperable. What are your tips for uh, technically de airing after LVAD implantation and for transitioning off of bypass support and onto the VAD system?
0: Yeah, so a, an axial flow VAD is a perfect LV vent uh, to help de air the left ventricle as well as the VAD itself. What I do is I always have an aortic vent on continuous suction at the actually throughout the case and, um, and, af- and um, in order to de air. I, find, I used to actually stick the graft itself as a de-airing site, but find a well-placed aortic vent uh, just distal to the, the uh, aortic uh, graft outflow anastomosis. serves as a wonderful way to uh, vent both the VAD as well as the ventricle. The way I typically come off both for de-airing and slowly weaning is, uh, is immediately once, the, um, is once you've completed your uh, VAD implantation, to start the EVAD at a minimal rate that actually uh, allows um, it as a very, very uh, partial vent, if you will. Uh, at a rate uh, for, uh, for HeartMate two, it would be approximately uh, 6,000 or 6,500 RPMs. Again, not to allow any AI, but to allow it to slowly um, uh, act as uh, to get rid of all the air and also then slowly... Uh, wean uh, the patient for cardiopulmonary bypass to increasing LVAT support with increasing
1: uh, uh, RPMs. Intraoperatively, what's your trigger or threshold uh, that signals RV failure and, and the need for RV support intraoperatively? Well, you'll find that you won't be
0: able to uh, either fill the ventricle, sustained a, uh, a cardiac index of around 2. Uh, if, if you continue to have suck-down events, um, you require uh, massive support of the right ventricle with I- I- inotropic pharmacologic uh, drugs such as epi-over-8, high-dose levofed, vasopressin, things like that, then it's time to think of a mechanical circulatory support solution. Again, if you, if you can wean off with the RPMs of around 8,000, uh, and you have an index of around two uh, with, a, with a reasonable amount of pharmacological support, that's the way we would go. If we could not maintain an index of around two um, with max pharmacological support, then we would, uh, we would do put a temporary RVAD in.
1: Let's say you place the LVAD and you're taking a look at the ECHO with your anesthesia colleagues uh, intraoperatively. What are you looking for in terms of the pump positioning and in terms of the aortic valve opening, and what do you do if the aortic valve does not open?
0: Well, the first thing we do, the most important thing in placing a centrifugal um, uh, continuous flow device, whether it's hardware or heart made tube, is to make sure the inflow is not up against or pointed to a sidewall; that it's really right down the barrel of the ventricle, and uh, literally uh, pointing towards the uh, mitral valve. Um, this is for both devices. I look at the uh, dipole of the uh, of the ventricular apex and do my coring right at that site. In order to maintain that inflow, it's it's not just where you put it with the ventricle, but with HeartMate II, you must make your pocket lateral enough and deep enough so the inflow is not going to be moving uh, based on the 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 body of the device being uh, sort of midline or shallow where you have a, an acute angle from the uh, body of the HeartMate tube to, to the inflow cannula. So again, ventricular apex, a pocket that is deep and lateral, um, and allows the uh, easy placement of the device with a uh, without uh, angulation. The inflow is directly down the barrel of the ventricle. Um, as far as the aortic valve goes, most of the patient's ventricle um, ventricles are sick enough where we don't expect the aortic valve to open at all. I mean, uh, eventually as the LV recovers, you'll see most aortic valves will open over time. But if you, if I find that the ventricles are sick enough initially that in order to maintain an adequate cardiac output, you have to have the VAD turned up to a degree that does not allow the aortic
1: valve to open, and we're fine with that. Can you um, describe your anticoagulation strategy, both in the immediate postoperative period with heparinization and longer term? What kind of long-term anticoagulation these patients would need, and what INR goals do you aim for?
0: Yeah, so in general, we, we start heparin at uh, the next day, you know, 24 hours, 18 hours, as long as there's no bleeding. We uh, shoot for uh, PTTs on that first postoperative day, well into the 40 range. Uh, once they're not bleeding, after a couple of days, we will gradually increase that to uh, 50 to 60. At the same time, we're starting cumin and aspirin, uh, full aspirin, as well as cumin with an INR that is, you know, for um, at least initially, we, we shoot for 20 to uh, uh, 2.0 to 3.0, uh, 2.0 being our cutoff
1: for stopping the heparin bridge. And can you um, briefly describe, with pump thrombosis being the hot topic that it is, um, when do you decide when to exchange a device? When do you decide to just uh, anticoagulate? How do you sort of make that decision point of of how to treat and manage uh, pump thrombosis?
0: Yeah, the data would clearly show that once you have a pump thrombosis, you are um, at a different life expectancy than if you didn't have a pump thrombosis. Very clearly also the New England Journal uh, paper several years ago showed that those that are exchanged early or uh, are, have a better survival than the ones that are treated uh, medically uh, with continued anticoagulation or increased can- or uh, thrombolytics or anything like that. So the decision point is is that once we see a patient that is hemolyzing to a, to a significant degree And generally with LDH that rises above, you know, certainly above 1,000, if not lower. But above 1,000, we're going to very, very, we almost um, will consider that uh, thrombosis unless proven otherwise. We'll move quickly to a a ramp study, which is actually looking for uh, the the slope of the uh, LV diameter as we increase our RPMs. And we would expect... That the uh, cardiac output would, uh, that the ventricle would shrink in size as you increase the RPMs. If that doesn't happen, that's another confirmatory um, test to say that you do have uh, pump thrombosis. Obviously, if the patient develops um, hematuria, you know, uh, uh, black urine or evidence of uh, a lot of free hemoglobin, that would be that's uh, sine qua non of pump thrombosis. In a patient that is a surgical candidate, our rule of thumb is to exchange the pump. If a patient is not a surgical candidate, elderly, infirm, uh, uh, you know, multi-system organ failure, then we would consider
1: sort of uh, lesser therapies such as thrombolytics. Okay, well, this wraps up our interview. Dr. Acker, thank you very much for your time and invaluable insight into left ventricular assist devices. Great.